Amen. Wasn't that a wonderful song? I believe we're going to try to sing that again next week as well. So, very blessed by that. We'll open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Today, we're going to look at what our Lord has to say about the Old Testament and how it applies to the life of the New Testament believer. So, we continue our study today on the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to read verses uh, chapter 5. Starting at verse 17, and we're going to read uh, through verse 20. The word of the Lord says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, in the middle of the second century A.D., a man by the name of Marsonian of Sinope taught that Jesus was not sent by the God that we read in the Old Testament, but from a foreign God. Marcion taught that the Old Testament was to be rejected because the God of the Old Testament, according to Marcion, was vengeful, ruthless, bloodthirsty. He was a God, not of the God of the New Testament, who was full of love and benevolence. Marcion desperately tried to move Christianity to break away from the Old Testament. Well, other church fathers like Justin Martyr, Arrhenius, and Tertullian denounced Marcion's teaching and denounced him as a heretic. And he was actually excommunicated, Marcion was, by the Church of Rome around 144 A.D. In a similar fashion today, there's a growing trend among our cultural Christianity to unhitch from the Old Testament. Just some years ago, if you don't remember, a man by the name of Andy Stanley, I said Annie, that may fit, Uh, Andy Stanley in 2018 made some horrible statements about how Christianity should unhitch from the Old Testament. He said in a sermon, quote, Peter James Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures, and my friends, we must as well. Now, while Stanley does not subscribe, I don't believe he subscribes to the full heresy of Marsonian. He claims to believe that God is the same God of the Old Testament as the New Testament, but the practical outworking of his teaching seems to indicate otherwise. Now, Andy Stanley went on after making those remarks to try to clarify those remarks, but He actually ended up digging himself, I believe, in more of a hole, because although he would say that the God of the Old Testament is the same as the New Testament, the way that he would teach it was that it was a different God in the way that he behaved, and that Christians are better to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament. It seems as though Andy Stanley, in a cultural sense, was embarrassed or ashamed of the Old Testament and thought it would be best for the New Testament believer to just forget about that, especially when you're trying to present a Jesus uh, in our culture, because there's a lot of things that 
are, are hard to explain, that, that seem ruthless and seem out of touch in the Old Testament. Well, today's Christianity as a whole, and many of today's Christians, see very little value in the Old Testament, either by mere ignorance or by bad teachers like Andy Stanley or bad teaching in their local church. However, in our text today, Jesus unequivocally upholds the authority, inerrancy, and perpetuality of the Old Testament. Now, as we look at our text today, if you haven't been with us, we went through the Beatitudes, starting at the beginning of chapter 5, which describe the true nature of a Christian. And then verses 13 through 16 describes the Christian's relationship, or how the Christian is to relate in the world. Now Jesus transitions to describing the Christian's righteous conduct. And here this transition is practically to the rest of the sermon of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus transitioned to describing the outworking righteous conduct of a Christian. He moves from the what, what a Christian is, to the how, how that Christian is to live godly in this world, how the Christian is to conduct himself. With this text, to be honest, I have felt all week woefully inadequate to address this text. I mean, to look and to try to plumb the depths of how Jesus fulfilled the entire law and prophets, as we see as the Old Testament. It's sort of like taking a paddle boat out into the middle of the ocean and dive in the middle of the ocean with a snorkel to say, hey, I'm going to go explore the ocean and the depths of the ocean. But we're going to do our best today to try to cover at least some aspects of how Jesus fulfilled the law. And then next time, we're going to look specifically on how the law is to be used and applied today. As we study the depths of this passage and as we study the depths of God's law and how Christ fulfilled it, may our prayer be, as the psalmist said in 119.18, Psalm 119.18, where he said, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. May that be our prayer today as we try to plummet the depths of how Christ fulfilled the law and the prophets. Let's look at our text, starting at verse 17, where Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. When Jesus says, Do not think, it's obvious to infer that somebody was thinking this, that the people there on the Sermon on the Mount were his disciples, but then it's said at the end there were crowds that were listening to Jesus. Some were thinking that Jesus was coming to abolish the law. And if you read further on, you know that many of the indictments upon Jesus was that he was doing such that. And even in the book of Acts, there are various texts where the Jews would come and make accusations against Paul and say that he's teaching us things that are contrary to the law of Moses. And just because we're in Matthew chapter 5, this is not the beginning of his ministry. I want to remind you that. This is sort of towards the middle of his ministry. And Matthew places the Sermon on the Mount up to the front of his gospel for various reasons that I explain in other sermons. 
So if you remember, if you read all the Gospels, you know that Jesus, he spoke with authority, and they were amazed that he was teaching as one with authority. Uh, they were amazed, if you remember, that the Pharisees sent guards to go capture Jesus in the book of John, and they came away empty-handed, and they told him, we've never heard a man speak like this. Jesus spoke in a way that he spoke from his own authority and not the authority of others, how the Jewish teachers would teach. So you had a lot of questions in many people's minds. Is he changing something? Is he uh, abolishing the law? Is he, uh, is he making changes to the Mosaic law? What is he doing? So that's why Jesus addresses this <clears throat> head on. Do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And I want to define these terms here in verse 17 so that we have an understanding as we go deeper into the text. When Jesus says the law or the prophets, he's referring to the totality of the Old Testament. The totality of the Old Testament. Many times the Old Testament was referred to the law and the prophets. This was the five books of Moses. This was the the books of the prophets and included the Psalms as well. I want you to turn with me as a illustration of this to Luke chapter 24. We fast forward to the end of Christ's earthly ministry where he is resurrected and he goes and he meets these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus is resurrected. They don't recognize him and he's walking and Jesus is asking, hey, what's going on? And, and they say, Have you, are you the only one not in Jerusalem, do you not know what's going on? And, and they explained to Jesus what had just happened. And look at verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all of the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Now look at verse 27. It says, Then beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in what? All the scriptures. In all the scriptures. Look at verse 44. Now Jesus is with the 11 disciples, apostles. In verse 44 of the same chapter of Luke, he says, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So here Jesus, and back in Matthew 5, is making the point that all of the Old Testament he did not come to abolish but to fulfill. And even when we read there in Luke 24, he says, Do you not understand that these things must happen to be fulfilled? Now, what does the word fulfill mean? It doesn't mean to make it come to an end. That's very important. To fulfill means to, to, to accomplish or to finish, to complete. But it doesn't have the idea that it means to end it. Okay, we're going to get to that. He has not come to abolish, and that word abolish means to destroy. The word abolish means to end in the original language. He did not come to destroy the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill. 
And then Jesus doubles down in verse 18. Look what he says. This is the first time in this gospel he uses this terminology. For truly I say unto you, or your version might say verily, verily, or verily I say unto you. He's double downing his point to, to come across as, uh, I, I'm telling you the truth, he says. I, I, I'm certain of this. Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now when he says here, not the smallest letter or stroke, he uses the word yoda, which is the Greek, or I'm excuse me, which is the smallest Hebrew letter, yod, which is a tiny dash, it's an actual Hebrew letter. He's saying not the smallest stroke of the Old Testament, not the smallest stroke of the law until all is accomplished. Nothing will be taken away until heaven and earth pass away. Not the, not the smallest thing until all is accomplished. And as we see, Jesus is the fruition. He, he accomplishes all of the law and the prophets. But this begs the question, the question that's been asked down through the centuries, in what sense has Christ fulfilled the law? In what sense has Christ fulfilled the Old Testament? In what sense has Christ fulfilled the prophets? Well, I first want to grow our understanding of the law itself. Okay, so the Old Testament, you have the threefold division of the law. You have the moral law, you have the ceremonial law, and you have the judicial law. And I believe that Christ fulfilled all three of these in his life, death, and resurrection. And let me show you how. First, the ceremonial law. I'm going to read from the Second London Baptist Confession, chapter 19, paragraph 3. says this, God was pleased to give the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits. The ceremonial law consisted of the entire sacrificial system. It consisted of the Levitical laws and the required feast festivals that God ordained for his people Israel. So how did Christ fulfill the ceremonial laws? Well, as I read here in the Second London Baptist Confession, I like the way that they put it, because it said it contains several ordinances prefiguring Christ, prefiguring his graces, his actions, his sufferings, and his benefits. Hebrews 10.1 says this, For the law, since it has only a shadow of good things to come. Let me back up. When New Testament writers reference the law, you got to look at how that's used in the context of that passage to determining to determine what law they're referencing. Here in Hebrews, it's very clear according to the context that the writer is referencing the ceremonial law. Okay, he's not referencing the judicial law or the moral law, which we'll get to in a minute, but so let's read this again. So for, for the law, since it only has a shadow of good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, 
by the same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Verse 11 of the same chapter says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Drop down to verse 18, says, Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. So the whole sacrificial system that God gave to Israel was not to forgive them of their sins. It was a type. It was a shadow of what was to come when we had the ultimate sacrifice, the spotless, unblemished Lamb of God to come and take away the sins of the world. Jesus Christ, when he came and he died on the cross, he became the ultimate sacrifice for forgiveness. And it says, where there's forgiveness, there's no longer an offering for sin. So you see, Christ fulfilled the ceremonial law by becoming the ultimate sacrifice that you and I need for the forgiveness of our sins. And when God prescribed the ceremonial law, he did it not not in a way to earn salvation, but to, to make these sacrifices by faith, looking forward to the ultimate Savior, the ultimate uh, Christ, the ultimate uh, Messiah, if you will, who would come and provide the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And then if you look at Colossians 2, verse 13, it says, When you were dead in your transgressions and sins, and the uncircumcised of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Look what verse 16 says. I wanted to read this in context because verse 16, he talks about uh, the law and the ceremonial law here. But because you're, you were dead in your transgressions, uh, dead in your sins, because he canceled the certificate of debt upon the cross, which had decrees against you, the wrath of God, because he canceled that on the cross. Look at verse 16 says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food, drink, or respect to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. Things, look at verse 17, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. The festivals, the Levitical laws, the cleanliness laws that separated Israel and made them holy, set apart from the rest of the world. The sacrifices, those were only a shadow of what was to come. But Paul says the substance is in Christ. Christ fulfilled all of the festivals. And I won't go into that today, but if you look at the reason why the festivals were celebrated, Christ fulfilled 
that. As a side note, in case you were wondering, in verse 16 where he says, do not let anyone ask as, act as your judge, it says the last thing he lists is a Sabbath day. Now this isn't a sermon on the Sabbath, but in the original Greek that is actually plural, so he says a new moon or Sabbaths, Sabbath days. So Israel had many Sabbaths that they, sac- that they, uh, that they celebrated. I do not believe that Jesus, that the Holy Spirit through Paul, was referencing the Sabbath, which is the seventh day rest. And so we are a 69 confessional church. I personally believe that that Sabbath is perpetual, and others might not agree. But I just wanted to make that point that I don't believe there he's talking about the Sabbath, but the Sabbaths that were celebrated uh, in the ceremonial law. Christ fulfilled the ceremonial law perfectly. He did it perfectly. Those priests, day after day after day, had to continually offer up sacrifices to only cover the sins that God, in his forbearance, would overlook, knowing that at the time that Christ died on the cross, all of the sins of the people in the past that believed upon God alone, and all the people in the future who would believe upon Christ alone, were in that moment on the cross, all of their sins were forgiven when the wrath of God was poured out of poured out upon Jesus. Well, what about the judicial law? We have the judicial law. These were laws given uh, mainly in the book of Exodus to Israelites. And the law, the judicial law, was given through Moses to the people on how to deal with those who would break God's moral law, which we'll get to next. So how did Christ fulfill this? Well, the judicial law, the Baptist Confession, puts it this way. To them, the Israelites... He also gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any now by virtue of that institution, their general equity only being of moral use. In other words, God felt pleased to give the Israelites judicial laws. If you read in the book of Exodus, if somebody breaks the law this way, then their punishment is this. It's case law. If this, then that. How did Christ fulfill those laws? Those laws were specific at the time for the law uh, for the Israelites. However, they come from the very moral law that God gave in the Ten Commandments. Christ fulfilled the, ju- the judicial law in a couple of ways. And commentators have kind of disagreed and given their thoughts on this. But if you look at the judicial law for Israel, what does it display? It displays the justice of God. When a man or a woman would commit adultery, then there was a, a consequence for that. When a man or a woman would be obstinate, rebellious, when a man or woman would steal, when a man or woman would fill in the blank, there was a punishment, and many people today would think those punishments are harsh. But what these did, what the punishments did, it, it showed the justice of God in a very temporal way. And I believe when Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled the judicial law in an eternal way by satisfying the justice of God that we deserve for our sins. 
Now, other commentators have actually pointed to when Jesus died on the cross, and then some years later, in 70 AD, what happened? The Romans came and they destroyed the temple. They destroyed everything here in Jerusalem. And God's people, as a physical people, ceased at that moment. So commentators would, some say, and, and uh, would say that Christ fulfilled the judicial law by bringing an end to the physical state of Israel at the time of Christ's death, because at the time of Christ's death, Christ then instituted his church, which consisted of both Jews and Gentiles. I believe in the former more that God on the cross, when Jesus Christ suffered the justice of God that you and I deserve, he fulfilled the judicial law uh, by taking our penalty, the eternal suffering that we deserve. Now, what about the moral law? I saved this one for last. The moral law is contained in the Ten Commandments. It's the foundation for all the other laws and ordinances. The Baptist Confession says the moral law does forever bind all, as well as justified persons as others, to the obedience thereafter, and that not only in regard to the matter contained in it, but also in respect to the authority of God the Creator who gave it. Neither does Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. In other words, what the framers of the confession are saying is that the moral law binds all people of all time to obey them, not just externally. When the framers say, not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect to the authority of God, the creator who gave it. What they're saying is that not only are we obligated to obey them externally, but we're also obligated to internally obey them for the glory of God. You understand the difference? Matter of fact, Jesus, right after this text, he goes in not correcting the law, but explaining and correcting the false views of the law when he says, Verily I say to you, it was as, it is, as you've heard it been said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman with lust has committed adultery in his heart. You understand the difference. So a man or woman could never commit adultery externally, but they could still break the seventh commandment and commit adultery because they haven't done it from a sincere heart for the glory of God. And they've also lusted in their heart and committed adultery already. So the moral law binds all people of all time. Christ fulfilled the moral law. How did he fulfill the moral law? Well, he obeyed it perfectly. As we just sung, that Christ satisfied the demands of the law. He obeyed it perfectly. All of God's law. Not only the moral law, he obeyed the ceremonial law perfectly. He obeyed the judicial law perfectly. Christ fulfilled the moral law because, first of all, it's his law. He came and he lived a righteous life, perfect obedience to the Father by obeying every commandment given to us in the Ten Commandments. Now, this is important because this is missed often in our culture. Christ did not fulfill the moral law 
so that you don't have to obey it. Christ did not fulfill the moral law so you don't have to obey it. This is the fatal flaw of what I've seen in much cultural Christianity. It's the idea that, you know, God did it so that I don't have to do it. In a salvific sense, amen, praise God. But in an obedience sense, Christ did not obey the law so that you did not have to live by that law. We call that antinomianism. There's this idea that, well, you know, we just need to obey the greatest two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, upon these two laws hang the law and the prophets, and amen. But the idea in much of our culture today is, well, that's the only two commandments I have to worry about. I don't have to worry about all the other things that God says in his word. But friends, you missed the point. Of these two commandments, hang all the law and the prophets. How do you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? How do you do it? By obeying his commands. How do you love your neighbor as yourself? By loving them according to what God has said in his word. In the Ten Commandments, the first four are how you can love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the last six are how to love your neighbor as yourself. So there's a skewed idea in our culture that, you know what, I just, God knows my heart. I'm just going to love God with all my heart. I'm going to love my neighbor. I don't have to worry about the Old Testament and all those commandments. But what is love? It's, it's given to us in his word, and we must Look to his word on what it says on how to love God and love our neighbor. God's law expounds upon how we're to love him and love our neighbor. 1 John 5, 2 says this, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his what? His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. That's the love of God. You want to know how to love God? Study his word and obey his commands. And it says, and his commands are not burdensome. His commands are not burdensome. What is your mentality when it comes to the law of God? The Old Testament. The commands that God gives, both in the moral law. We know the ceremonial law was fulfilled. The judicial law is no longer intact But the moral law and all of the prophets who expound upon the moral law in the Psalms and in the books of the prophets, all of God's commands and then the New Testament writers, they don't change it. They just go, they just reveal more of the holiness of God. What is your reaction when you're face to face with God's commands? I'm not talking about the easy ones, like whatever doesn't, you don't struggle with. Okay, if you don't struggle with lust or pornography or adultery praise god but what about coveting when you're met face to face with the command thou shall not covet oh well that's just how i'm i just i i just desire a lot and and god's okay with it and what about gluttony you know that's a sin you know overeating overindulging when you're come face to face with the word of god what are the commandments to you are they burdensome or are you like the psalmist who says, How I love thy law, O God. It is my meditation all the day. 
How do you react when you come face to face with commandments in God that are specifically for you on what you're not doing or what you are doing that you should not be doing? I want to get real personal here. I want you to think about things that God's word says to stop doing or what God's word says to start doing that you just can't do or can't or can do but you shouldn't how what is your reaction to that see one who has been transformed by the power of God the reaction to that is I know I'm, I'm I'm a failure God in that area please change my heart in that area I I, I struggle with doing this I struggle with being patient with my children or being soft-spoken with my spouse or or being content with what you've given me or haven't given me. Father, I know that I've struggled in that point. Please change my heart. I want to obey your word, and I want to live a life full of contentment and, and being soft-spoken, or whatever the struggle is. Uh, God, I, I hold bitterness towards certain people. Help me with that. Or when you come face-to-face with that command, are you obstinate? Well, God, that, you know, God knows my heart. I don't have to worry about that command. That's just how I am. Even the prophecy of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, what's it say? Go back and read it tonight. It's not in my text today. It'll be in next time. But when God gives the new covenant promise, he says, I will give them a new covenant and I will put my law within their hearts and they will walk according to my statutes. When someone's converted by the power of God, although not perfectly, they love the law of God. It is their meditation all the day. So Christ fulfilled completely the law of God. But I want to go deeper with this and give another aspect that I think is not preached often. And I want to address this other aspect of how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament, uh, particularly how he fulfilled prophecy, how he fulfilled prophecy. Well, you can probably agree with me, and you've probably read a lot of these, that there's hundreds, if not thousands, of Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah and how he would fulfill them, where he would be born, how he would be born, the type of life he would live, the type of death he would die. In fact, Matthew here is writing to a primarily Jewish audience, and he wants to He wants it to be real clear to the Jews that Christ fulfilled all of these prophecies. As a matter of fact, when it says here, as it's been, as it was, and it was fulfilled, that term was used 13 times in Matthew in regards to fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. It's the most of any other gospel. And before even the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew uses it a number of times, starting in chapter 1. Verse 22, just real quickly, it says, Now this was to take place to fulfill that what was spoken through the prophet. And then chapter 2, verse 15, says, And this was, uh, this was to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet. And then verse 17, this was fulfilled. Verse 23 This was to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophets. Chapter 4, verse 14, he keeps going on 13 times. This was to fulfill the prophets. This was to fulfill what had been written. Matthew wanted to make it real clear to his Jewish audience that Jesus came to fulfill all of those prophecies. 
And those are neat to look at. Like I said, there's hundreds or thousands of them. But I want to briefly show you how, how he specifically fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament by his mediatorial work as a prophet and as a priest and as a king. He fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies by becoming, and as he was, a prophet. What do prophets do? Well, most people think, well, they tell the future, right? That's one aspect of a prophet. But what a prophet does is they are a mouthpiece for God. They speak, thus saith the Lord. They speak to the people on behalf of God. Uh, When the preaching of the word is preached, when the word of God is open and expounded and explained, that is operating in the prophetic When I'm teaching the Word of God, and it's according to the Word of God, and it's accurate, this is, in a sense, a prophecy. It's speaking for God. It's not foretelling the future, but it's being a mouthpiece for God. Jesus actually called himself a prophet in Luke 13, 33. And this was prophesied in the Old Testament all the way back in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. And then in three verses later, in verse 18, he says the same thing. He'll raise up a prophet. And this was fulfilled, this one scripture was fulfilled in Acts 3.18. Peter, after healing the lame beggar at the gate of the temple called Beautiful, he gives his second sermon in the book of Acts, And he says this in Acts 3.18. He says, But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Verse 19. Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing come in the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive, until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Here it is, verse 22. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the nations. This is Jesus Christ fulfilling the office of a prophet. John 1.18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Jesus has explained God. That word explain in the Greek is exegenomai. It means to unfold or to reveal It's where we get the word exegesis. It's where a faithful preacher brings out and unfolds the meaning of the text. Exa, exit, exegesis versus eisegesis. What many preachers do is they bring their own interpretation and own view of the text into the text and reads into it what's not there. Jesus explained, exegeted Jesus. Jesus exegeted God, the Father. And that's what a prophet does. It unfolds and speaks and reveals God to the people. How does Christ execute the office of a prophet? 
by revealing to us, one catechism says, by his word and spirit, the will of God for our salvation. That's how Christ fulfilled the office of a prophet. Because, friends, you and I are completely ignorant on how we must live. We're ignorant on how to be saved. Jesus came as the, in the office of a prophet to reveal to us by both his spirit and the word the will of God for our salvation. <clears throat> and the Apostle Peter says this in his second epi- uh, epistle. Chapter 1, verse 2, verse 3, he says that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything that pertains to life and godliness, God has granted you. How? It says, through the knowledge of him, Jesus, who called us by his own glory and excellence. You and I have all that we need to know on how to be saved, on how to live a life of godliness through the knowledge of Jesus Christ because he operates as a prophet and he is our great prophet who reveals the will of God for our lives. Second, Christ fulfilled the Old Testament by becoming a priest, by being our priest. What do priests do? Priests intercede to God on behalf of man specifically in regard to sin. It was prophesied that the Messiah would be a priest in a number of passages. Psalm 110.4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This was fulfilled in a few different passages. One Hebrews 5.6 says, Just as he also in another passage says, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Speaking of Christ there, Christ is a priest. Christ is not only a priest, he is our high priest. Hebrews 4.14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And then Hebrews 7.23 says, The former priest, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it is fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. Because this, Jesus, he did once for all when he offered up himself. Christ executes the office of a priest by his once-for-all sacrifice, to satisfy divine justice and make and by making continual intercession for us. Friends, you and I need a priest because we cannot atone for our own sins. We need a high priest because we are guilty. We need somebody to intercede for us. 
and that great high priest, Jesus Christ, has done that and is doing that. It says he makes to always intercede on our behalf. Praise God. Amen. Lastly, Christ fulfills the law and the prophets by executing the office of a king. Christ fulfilled the Old Testament by being a prophet, by being a priest, and by being a king. This is first shown in Genesis 49 when Jacob gives prophecies for all his children, for his sons. Verse 10, for Judah, he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Then Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout and triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even the colt, the foal of a donkey. And we know this was fulfilled during his triumphal entry. This text was quoted as being the fulfillment, Matthew 21, 5 and others. Well, how about this? How about the Davidic covenant? 2 Samuel seven sixteen. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your sh- throne shall be established. This was a prophecy, and this was fulfilled in Luke chapter 1, verse 32, when the angel said to Mary, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Friends, when we think about Christ fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament, we need to narrow our focus. It wasn't just that, oh, that's great. Yeah, he did fulfill all of the, the, the prophecies on where he would be born, how he would be born. But more importantly, we need a prophet. We need a priest. And we need a king because we are helpless. We can't defend ourselves. We need a king. <clears throat> Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child will be born, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end of the increase of his government of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So here, again in Isaiah, he's going to be a king when he comes, and that was fulfilled. Even in Psalm 2, 6, the father says, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Why do you need a king? Because we're weak. We're helpless. As I said, we cannot defend ourselves. And what do kings do? What's inferred when there is a king ruling over a kingdom? Those under his kingdom are to do what? They're to obey. They're to submit. They're to honor the king. So in closing, I'd like to ask you, is Christ your king? Is Christ your prophet? Is Christ your priest? I want to also end by asking you, how do you 
react to the Old Testament? Is it just, well, it's, if I can get to it, I'll read it. It's hard to read, especially when you get to books like Leviticus. I understand. But what is your mentality to the Old Testament? It's, uh, it's, it's, it's not for today because Christ would say something different. Christ would say something different. Now, next time, we will address how is the law to be used today. We looked at how Christ fulfilled the law. Next time, uh, in a couple weeks, I'll go over what is the use of the law today. There are a few different uses that we'll go over. How does it apply to the life of the believer? How does it apply to the life uh, of the church? How does it apply to mankind in general? But again, I'll end as I start. How can we, can we say, as the psalmist said, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Do you love God's law? I pray you do. Uh, if you are impartial to God's law, maybe that's God either bringing you to repentance as a believer for not looking to his word as Christ has looked, or maybe, maybe you've just never been converted in the first place, and you need to take that to the Lord and seek him to see if he's truly converted you and that you would come to love his law, to study it, to seek to obey it in all parts of your life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much, Lord, that you've... I thank you, God, that you're our prophet. You've revealed to us the will of God for salvation, for life. You've revealed to us through your word how to come to you, You've preserved your word through the ages so that we can read it, understand it, have the sense of what it means to repent of our sin, to be convicted, to come to you by faith alone. Father, forgive us, forgive me, Lord, for having a lax attitude towards your word, towards the law, towards the prophets. Oh God, there's so much depths to plunge in your word. I pray, Lord, that you would help us. Father, help us to have such a desire to obey you as Jesus did when he lived this life. Help us to have such a submission to you as Christ did when he was on this earth. Father, help us to grow in our thankfulness for understanding how you fulfilled the law's demands on our behalf. Oh God, we could never even come close to living just an hour or a minute in complete obedience to the law of God. You know, God, sin has tainted every faculty of our being. We can never truly love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength for any period of time as Christ did when he was on earth. But God, by your grace, by your grace, Lord, you did it in our, in our, on our behalf. We thank you, God, for taking the righteousness that we can never earn and crediting our account and taking the sin punishment that we deserve and pouring it out upon your Son upon the cross. Grow our desire for you, God. Grow our desire to obey 
your word, that we would be a light, that we would be the salt of the earth, that others would see our good works, that we truly desire to live a life obedient to your word in every aspect, God. Father, I pray for the areas of our lives now, God, that you would reveal to us, God, by your Holy Spirit and your word, the areas of our life, Lord, where we have failed to submit to you, where we have not had zeal to mortify and kill the sin that is so displeasing to you. I pray, God, right now, in our, as our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, that you would reveal those things to us, God, the areas of our life where your law shines and reflects the ugliness of our sin. And we, God, we know, Lord, there's no condemnation not to condemn us, God, but to convict our hearts where we're not pleasing you as we desire to please you, Lord. Bring us to repentance, Lord. Bring us to the understanding of how displeasing those thoughts or words or actions or lack thereof grieve the Holy Spirit and grieve you. May we seek, Father, to have a better attitude when it comes to those things. Forgive me, Lord, for being lazy when it comes to addressing those things so easily besetting us. Father, may you conform us to the image of Christ, God. May you strengthen us by the Holy Spirit, Father, to do your will as you've promised to do, God. And as we go from repentance to obeying your word, God, help us to do it in faith, knowing that you've promised, God, that your Holy Spirit would enable us, God, would enable us to obey your word, to obey your commands. And when we do, Father, may you get all the glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.